0: So we celebrate independence of our country on the 4th of July, and that's, that's all well and good. That's a good thing. I will tell you, this is hardly a 4th of July sermon. I guess it's as close as I will get to preaching such a thing. But it's a very suitable topic for us uh, because the gospel declares a much greater independence, a much greater freedom for us than even the 4th of July possibly can do. This is Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ." And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Lord, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would give us your spirit so that we might understand your word and so that we even more might believe it. Help us to do that, Lord, and give us life in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it was July 4, of course, 1776, when the Continental Congress of the 13 colonies of what is now this country approved the Declaration of Independence and It stands very much as a monument in our culture, and we celebrate it, and rightly so. One of my favorite 4th of July memories was about 20 years ago, I was working at Alpine Camp for Boys in northern Alabama. And that particular summer, I got assigned the job when the 4th of July was approaching to go and take the camp truck and drive with another staff member up across the Tennessee state line to the giant fireworks warehouse that, that that stands on the edge of the line between Tennessee and Alabama and Georgia and advertises itself year-round as the place to come and buy fireworks. We went and loaded up the back of the truck with fireworks. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we were looking for or shopping for, but we found all the things that looked like they'd make a good show. We brought it back to the camp and on the 4th of July, we got to set up all those fireworks in a line on a plywood board out on the field as the the campers lined up on the tennis courts across that field. We had no idea what we were doing. We just knew how to light a match and light a fuse. And thankfully, no one got hurt and we put on a show. At least the fireworks did. It was a lot of fun, even if it was a bit dangerous. I don't recommend it. Certainly not here in the city. For some 240 years now, this country has had the freedom, at least, to wrestle with what it means to be free. Admittedly, many in this country are less free than others are, and that's always been the case as this country has wrestled with what it means to be free. And that freedom has come from the, the work and the sweat and the labor and the blood and the tears of many who have come before us. Now, I'm no political pundit, but I would go out on a limb, I suppose, to say that when a country forgets the roots of its liberty, then the shackles of oppression tend to regain their power. And if this is the case with any one country, with any one people, then how much more so with the entire human race? Our Fourth of July celebration is really just a reflection. It's really just a glimmer of hope. It's really just a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the promise of liberty that God made to his people long ago. Last week, we, we read that passage previous to this one of, of Jesus going into the synagogue of Nazareth, his hometown, where all the, the people knew him or knew of him, or at least were aware that he was the son of Joseph the carpenter. And he went there into that synagogue and he read from the prophet Isaiah the mission statement as he stated it himself that he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord, the liberty of the captives and of the oppressed, sight to the blind. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah had borrowed that idea from Moses, who had received it from the Lord himself generations before. In the promised land, God told Moses, you will plant the land for six years. And on the seventh year, during that year, you'll give the land a Sabbath rest, he, he told them. And you won't plant, but you'll give the land a rest in that seventh year, and I'll provide for you the food to eat. Every seventh year, you'll give the land a Sabbath rest. And after seven sequences of those sevens, after the 49th year, in the 50th year, you will celebrate an extraordinarily redemptive celebration. And you will, throughout all the land, proclaim liberty to all who live in the land. In the 50th year, it was the, the year of the Lord's favor. It was what they, what they called the Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. And in Moses' day, as, as I mentioned last week, That was a very practical way for Israel to prevent systemic poverty among its people. But it also was a pointer to God's bigger plan. And in Isaiah's day, it was a a poetic way, Jubilee was, a poetic way to give Israel hope during their exile in Babylon, that the Lord would come and restore them. But it also was a pointer to God's bigger plans. And now when Jesus proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor in this nondescript synagogue in Nazareth, those bigger plans had come. The bigger plans had arrived. For generations, every 50th year, among the Israelites, Jubilee would arrive. And every 50th year, wrongs would be righted. Every 50th year, families would be reconnected and lives would be restored. Every 50th year land would be returned to its original owners. In other words, there was liberty for the captive. There was freedom for the oppressed. There was sight for the blind. It was the year of the Lord's favor indeed. But all of this and all of these little freedoms that they gained in the 50th year only anticipated something much greater, the coming of the kingdom of God and the true freedom that that would bring. So you can set off all the fireworks that you want. It's a lot of fun. Light up the sky with fireworks or watch it on television or go to the park and watch all the fireworks that you might enjoy. But only with the coming of Jesus did true freedom arrive. He declared his mission statement. And now Luke tells us that Jesus got down to work. What is the freedom that he brings? It's a freedom from pretension. A freedom from... Pretense, from pretending, from, from trying to appear greater or more important than you actually are. The social media world in which we live offers us all kinds of opportunity to do that, doesn't it? To pretend to be something that we're really not. And we like to pretend. But the gospel frees you from pretending in a certain way. That is, it frees you from the pretense of being your own authority of being your own boss, so to speak. Following his very brief sermon in Nazareth in that that synagogue there, Luke narrates Jesus down to Capernaum, he he tells us. It's about a 30-mile walk from Nazareth in the hills, literally down to Capernaum. It's about 600 or so feet below sea level at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke takes us with Jesus down to Capernaum. And that would become Jesus' headquarters, as it were, during his Galilean ministry, during the the days that he spent in the northern part of Israel. And it was the home to Simon Peter. He was right on the edge of the lake, which is very appropriate for a fisherman like Peter to live there, of course. And now it's a week later after the, the previous account in Nazareth, evidently from Luke's account. And it's the Sabbath once again, and Jesus is teaching in their synagogue. And he gets really quite a different response from these people, doesn't he, than what he got in Nazareth. They wanted to walk him out to the edge of the cliff and stone him to death, kill him, push him off the edge. But here he gets a very different response. What is it? Luke tells us they were astonished at his teaching because his word possessed authority. In fact, Mark in his gospel adds on this description. He says, his words possessed authority, not like the scribes, The scribes were the the teachers, the scholars of the day, the the men who knew religion, who had studied their Old Testament, and who, who could teach it, who could teach all the ins and outs of the law. And they did so to the people. They did so certainly in the synagogues. And the scribes, in doing that, constantly were quoting their own rabbis, their own scribes, their own teachers. They were footnoting and quoting And the rabbis and teachers that they quoted had quoted the ones that came before them, who quoted the ones that came before them. There were never-ending footnotes to all of their teaching. They always footnoted everything. And anyone who writes or teaches or preaches today can understand the the necessity of that because in some sense there are no really original thoughts, right? I mean, you students who finished school again for the summer a month or some weeks ago, you probably wrote some term papers, and you had to include some footnotes, right? Because your teacher wanted to know, where did you get this information? Who's your authority? Preachers do the same thing. We don't necessarily footnote everything verbally as we speak, but I listen to all kinds of other preachers, a whole list of. I could name a whole list of other preachers that I listen to at different times because it stirs my thoughts and gives me ideas and makes me realize, oh, this, that's really a good way to think about this passage. And we could footnote all kinds of things, About that, but eventually for us preachers, we begin to realize ultimately the footnote that we have is this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Even the Old Testament prophets would do that. Isaiah and others would say or write, and the word of the Lord came to me. This is what they did. There was always a footnote. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. And that's why it's so striking for these people in Capernaum to listen to him teach. Because as you read Jesus' words throughout the gospel accounts, what is it that he says to introduce what he's about to teach? He never says, and the word of the Lord came to me, or God says. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, truly I say to you, no scribe ever did that. And here he is in this synagogue in Capernaum saying to them, presumably, truly i say to you and the people are astonished it's a it's actually a claim to deity is what it is he's claiming to be god himself because he offers no footnotes and it's why they're astonished at his teaching he he says his word possessed authority and when the gospel comes it frees you from your pretense to be your own boss to be your own authority as god's word it has authority it is authority And that can be irritating to power-hungry souls like you and me. Now, when I was an RUF campus minister, I can remember going uh, with my students to a fall conference, a regional conference with some other campuses one time. And we had decided as campus ministers we wanted the topic of this conference to be the reliability of the Bible. And so we invited another pastor to come, a friend, uh, Jonathan Inman, who is a pastor in North Carolina and, and a really bright thinker who who can 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 dig into these topics in unique sorts of ways and he came and he spoke on the reliability of the bible and his his ruling illustration of the weekend was you can't card god you know when you go to a movie you teenagers you go to a movie and your parents aren't with you that probably they're supposed to but they probably don't ask you How old are you? Show me how old you are. Can you get into this PG-13 or this rated R movie? You've got to show me how old you are. They want to card you. They want someone else's authority to vouch for you. When you go to a bar and try to buy alcohol, they want to know that you're 21 years old. And if you don't look like you're 21 years old, and maybe even if you do, they ask you for your card. They card you. My friend Jonathan said, you can't card God. He said, all weekend long, we know that the Bible is the word of god because it says it's the word of god and he quoted from john from his gospel from his letters he quoted from matthew he quoted from exodus and deuteronomy he quoted from malachi and second peter he quoted all over the bible all weekend long and i began to recognize quickly that my students were really irritated they were really frustrated by this because they quickly recognized this is circular reasoning it's circular reason. You can't tell us that the Bible is God's word because the Bible says it's God's word. What, what What is that? That makes no sense to us. You've got to quote some other authority. And he said, exactly. You can't card God. There is no other authority beyond him. Who can be God's footnote? Who can validate God's authority? You can't card God. And so Jesus said, taught with this authority and then he demonstrated this authority by taking action in verse 33 he's in the synagogue and there's a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice ha what have you to do with us jesus of nazareth have you come to destroy us i know who you are the holy one of god this man with the spirit has a boss doesn't he He has an authority that rules over him And immediately there's a conflict. And Jesus rebukes the spirit and casts him out. And it's the real life action of a spiritual reality that that the apostle John would later describe in one of his letters. He, He wrote, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the work of the devil has been to control, to manipulate, to deceive, to mislead, and to give you and me every reason possible for us to think that we are our own boss but we're not we're not i mean as americans we value freedom and that's good we we celebrate freedom it's a, it's a noble and proper gospel truth to celebrate but apart from the gospel are you really free are you oh you're free to make choices But even in that, you're constrained by your circumstances, right? You're free to present an image on social media, but in that, you're constrained even still by what you think that your, quote, friends want to see of you. So even there, you're constrained, and you're free to say no to temptation. But do you? Do you all the time? Do you always say no to temptation? I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you have your own moral standard by which you live, which you feel obliged to, to, to guide your life with. And even then, you break it because you're not your own boss. You're enslaved to something. Jesus rebuked the demon and commanded it to come out. He even spared the man's physical well-being. He, he suffered no harm. Jesus is in total control of this situation but notice the people's reaction to it in verse 36. Do you see what they said? They were all amazed, Luke tells us, and they said to one another, "What is this word? Not what is this action? Not what did this man just do? What did we just see?" That's not what they said. They said, "What is this word? Where did this authority come from? It didn't require any incantations or rituals or even footnotes. Only a word from the Son of God brought freedom to this man. And so it is with your sin and guilt. So it is with your own brokenness and your own need. The gospel brings freedom from your pretense. So quit pretending that you're in charge. Quit pretending that you can control temptation. Quit pretending that you can command the evil that's inside of you because with a word, the Son of God shows the authority of God. You are free because the gospel frees you from pretense and it frees you as well from false hope. Verse 38, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Mary and I, back in January when we visited Israel, we got to go to Capernaum and see the, the ruins of Capernaum and, and the old, I think it was a second century synagogue that sits there on the site of the first century synagogue where Jesus had this interaction. And you can leave that synagogue and walk down the sidewalk. It's about a block's distance to get to the place where tradition has it since earliest centuries is the site of Simon Peter's house. It's only a block away or so, and nowadays there is a church built on the site, of course. In the earliest centuries, there was a church built to claim the site of Peter's house, and it was was in the shape of an octagon. And nowadays, over the ruins of that site is an octagonally shaped, almost spaceship-looking Roman Catholic church building called St. Peter's House a fascinating thing but right there just a block away from that synagogue is where Jesus went and there he met Simon's mother-in-law and Luke tells us that she had a high fever. Luke Luke was a a physician right and so he even specifies this was a mega fever. It was a high fever. It wasn't just some casual sort of nuisance of a fever but it was a serious fever that she had. We don't know if it was life-threatening but we do know that Jesus rebuked the fever and it went out of her and she began to serve them. And then when the sun was setting, meaning it was the end of the Sabbath day and people could begin to do such things, people began to carry their loved ones or family members or friends who were sick or diseased and they brought them to Simon Peter's house. And Luke tells us that Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. You can almost see the lineup of people outside this little house waiting their turn as Jesus received every one of them. Luke tells us, and laid his hands on them and healed them of their various maladies. And there were more demons cast out. And what is Jesus doing here? Very simply, he was healing real maladies. He was solving real problems for these people in their real life circumstances. And you have real problems, too. I do. I, I know that you do. That We all have real problems. We have chronic pain that comes from an old injury or from some inherited condition or a loss of a job that continues to plague you and your family or you've not yet met the man who could be your husband and you long to be married or you've not yet met the woman who could be your wife and you long for marriage and family or you're a teenager and you struggle with Friendships in school, maybe you feel like you have no friends in school, and so you wrestle with those sorts of, of problems. Real life problems. The kinds of things that Jesus, Jesus attends to, even right here, because he attends to real human needs. And therefore, so must we. So must we in the church, we have to recognize that, that the church, the congregation of a family like this one, is the place in which counseling should happen it should happen among us right here from brother to brother from sister to sister from friend to friend counseling and caring for one another for real life problems right here in the church it's part of why we have our alms ministry it's a it's a real life connection to real life problems for which jesus actually really does care now i I thought of briefly calling this second point freedom from disappointment, that the gospel brings freedom from disappointment. But then I realized that would actually be a lie. That would be totally misleading and untrue, wouldn't it? Because life is full of disappointment, and certainly the Christian life is no less, maybe even more, full of disappointment in its every ordinary days. Because things, could, things just don't go how we want them to go. Things don't go how they really ought to go much of the time, do they? There's injustice, there's neglect, there's pain and suffering and death because of sickness and disease that goes unhealed in this life. There's so much disappointment. But every one of us deals with that by attaching our hope to things that probably won't deliver. A new boyfriend, a new place to live, a uh, shopping spree, another video game. Some escape that we use to address the problems that we face in our real lives, but often our chosen solutions bring only false hope because they really only mask the greater spiritual problem that's, leaking, that's, that's lurking beneath the surface, which is this. You long to be made new. You long to be made whole to be made real again. And Jesus had this problem in view, didn't he? I mean, notice that he keeps on rebuking demons in this passage here. In the synagogue, he rebuked a demon. He told him, be silent. And at Simon Peter's house, he rebuked more demons. And Luke tells us he would not let them speak. Why? Because they knew that he was the Christ. They would have been perfectly happy, that the demons, that is, the devil, who's at work in all of this, would have been perfectly happy to simply out Jesus to the world. Hey, look, everybody, take a look. Here is the Son of God. Everybody, come on and, and, and bring the hordes to the Jesus Medical Clinic in Capernaum. He would have been happy to put up neon signs and flashing lights, that is, the devil would have been, to bring all of the countryside into Capernaum for healing at Simon Peter's house. He would have been happy for that distraction. But that's all it ultimately would have been is a distraction. It would have pushed Jesus off track from what he really came to do, which is to provide true hope of redemption. C.S. Lewis, to quote him from one of his excellent essays, refers to this as, our desire for a far-off country. I want to quote from Lewis here for a moment, if you will will indulge me and and listen to this. This is what he writes. He says, In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an, an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that's never actually appeared in our experience. And we cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. Our most common expedient is to call it beauty, And behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth, that is, the the old British poet, identified it with certain moments in his own past, but all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country that we have never yet visited." The fever, the sickness, the disease, the demons, the, the broken hearts, the chronic pain, the, the loss of a sense of calling, the years seemingly wasted are all real problems. They, they are, they're real problems. And Jesus would surely lay hands on all of them. Were they the ultimate problem? But they're not. They are rather the revealers of what you really long for. He came to proclaim the 50th year. He came to proclaim the the 50th year, the year of the Lord's favor for his people. Not just one year, but the rest of eternity, the restoration of all that God has made, which is the longing behind your your longing. It's, It's the longing underneath your desires. He came to free you from false hope. And likewise, he came to free you from self. Now, by this, I mean not from yourself. He didn't come to free you from yourself, as if you yourself were not worth spending time with. That's obviously not Jesus' posture here in this passage. I mean, he shows so much care for the individuals of Capernaum and their real-life problems, right? It's not to come and free you from yourself. But it's something more than that. Verse 42 And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. That is, he went somewhere solitary, somewhere to be alone, presumably to go and pray. But the people looked for him. They sought him out and they came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them. They would have kept him from leaving them, Luke wants us to know. They did not want him to go. And. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I I really don't think that Luke is trying to incriminate these people by saying that, by writing that about them and observing that that was their intention. We would have done the same thing. I mean, it's just an indication that they saw the blessing that Jesus' presence actually brought to their lives. And their first inclination was to do exactly what we would have done, to want him to stay more. They want more. They want for Jesus to stick around. Jesus, just stay with us here in Capernaum. You're a really good citizen. You could be the teacher at our kids' school. We'll elect you to be chairman of the school board, Jesus. In fact, we'd like you to be their, 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 their basketball coach. Will you coach their, their little league baseball teams for us? And we'll even elect you, Jesus, to be mayor of Capernaum. Will you just stick around and be a part of our community? Just stay here is what they want. And we would want the same thing. But he won't stay. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He won't stay because the gospel frees you from self. Now, you may still be trying to parse my words a bit and figure out what, what do you mean by self? Surely you mean unselfishness. The gospel makes me to be unselfish. And sure, of course it does at some point along the way, but that's really not the point here either. Again, C.S. Lewis is helpful. Another quote, not as long. If you asked 20 good men today, Lewis writes, what they thought, the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you ask almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. Do you hear the distinction? Sure, growth and grace leads ultimately to unselfishness among many things, But when you're free from self, you're not just striving for abstinence. You are rather pursuing the good of others. You're pressing the gospel out from you into other places. I mean, notice Jesus explains his departure in terms of a gospel imperative. This is is a key thing for Luke. Jesus says, I must I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. It's a gospel imperative. I must do this thing. It's a divine necessity that the blessing of the gospel go out to others as well. And if you are free in the gospel, then you are free to press that good out to others for their good. I mean... We're inclined to be hoarders, aren't we? I mean, just like the reality TV show. It's reality. There are many people that are inclined to hoard things, to collect stuff, and pile it up so much they can't even walk through their house anymore. That's really at the heart of all of our hearts, isn't it? We, we want to hoard, maybe not things or papers or canned goods or whatever people collect, but we hoard, we collect, and, and we do it because we're building our own little kingdoms. I mean, I, I recognize that I think every time I walk into a movie theater or a theater like this one, and you, you come in if the theater is crowded, which today, the holiday weekend, it's not so crowded, but you come in and, and into a crowded movie theater, and inevitably there are three of you in your group, and you recognize there are two seats left in the middle of the row, and everybody else is seated, but there are two, they left two seats in the middle of the row. Why do they do that? That drives me crazy. Does that not drive you crazy? And then there's one seat over here on this, but it's, of course it's not on the end of the row. It's in the middle of the row, too. Why? Because people are collecting their own comfort. You know, I don't want to sit next to that stranger, so I'll just leave a little space between me and them for my good. But I'm not thinking about the guy coming with three people late in the movie, and now he can't sit with his friends because he's got to, you know what I mean? Because we collect stuff, we hoard for our own good because we don't think about the good of those around us. But the gospel frees you from self so that you can press that good out into the lives of other people, even at the cost of your own freedom. Johannes Gutenberg, Christians know that name well in our history lessons because so I think it was almost 600 years ago, he invented the printing press, as we call it. And this German blacksmith did this. And and over the course of, of years, he perfected his craft to to, to create mass printing to send out communication more broadly. And one of the projects, of course, that Gutenberg took on was, was the Bible, to print the Bible for the masses. And he borrowed money from an investor who, who loaned him money in order to do this. He wasn't necessarily a man of means himself, but he had an investor to, to back him up. And, and he had some money-making, printing sort of jobs going on, but he also had this, this project of printing the Bible going on as well. And that was a priority to him. And eventually, his investor sued him in the court of the day to get his money back because Gutenberg just wasn't making enough money to pay him back. And Gutenberg, having printed the Bible, eventually went bankrupt and he died in obscurity. And yet, he had given much of his professional life to press the gospel forward, to to push it out into the world so that the masses could read the Bible too because he was concerned for their good. The gospel frees you to seek the good of others. It frees you from self. You know, like, like the freedom of a country, every country knows this in its history, like the freedom of a country, it often requires the death of people who come before you who will fight for that freedom to gain it And so also the freedom of the gospel, it always requires death. Certainly the death of Jesus, but it also requires death in your life. It requires death of your own sense of authority. It requires the the death of your personally styled solutions to your very real problems. And it requires the death of your own little kingdoms to which you hoard stuff all the time. Because the freedom of that gospel, which Jesus proclaimed, is the 50th year of God's redemption. It is the fulfillment of all of God's plan to bring freedom to the captives, liberty to the oppressed, and sight to the blind, so that we might walk truly in freedom. May you, in this week and all the weeks of your lives, know the freedom of that 50th year in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and believe. Help us, Father, even as we come to the communion tables now together to recognize in the bread and the wine, the flesh and blood of our Savior and to trust him for his righteousness. And we pray, Father, that in these things you would give us not only freedom but life in his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.